Hello, everyone, and welcome to Petite de Queen's Practical Wisdoms for Life podcast. I'm Lynn, your host of today's show. I'm here with our Vice President of Operations, Amanda, and our special guest, author Nate Nasrallah. Today, we will be discussing Nate's new book, Living Forward, Looking Backward. Uncover more meaning in your ordinary, everyday life. So Nate, I was intrigued with your book title and the message because it talks a lot about finding meaning, obviously in the everyday and ordinary moments of our lives. And when you talk about meaning, what are you referring to? Yeah, well, Lynn, uh, first, and Amanda, thanks so much for having me um, on the show. So when I'm referring to meaning, what I'm talking about is that, you know, all of us understand that we live in this world of highlights and headlines. So the question is, amidst our routines, you know, our lists of to-dos and tasks, how do we ever know if and when we've arrived? So what I'm advocating for is this, you know, we can in fact find a feeling of purpose in what I'll call the plain vanilla days of our lives. And we can find a sense of unconditional joy and fulfillment that's not going to leave us, you know, looking for what's new or what's next. And so when your life has direction, you feel a sense of significance in your work, and you are genuinely content in the middle of a difficult season of life, you know, all told, all put together, you will then say that your life holds meaning. What you're saying really makes sense, Nate. Um, But how do we get there? Diving right into it, I think that's something we all want and, and feel would be great to attain. But if you Google or Amazon self-help or self-improvement books, there are thousands of approaches out there. What's different about yours? Yeah, you know, you are so right. The number of books and theories on how to live a full or a purposeful life are dizzying. So I'll give you a quick analogy first, and then I'll move into a more specific answer. So uh, my wife, Erin, and I recently bought a home. And when we bought this house, it had a brown carpet, green walls, a yellow kitchen. So it was like 1980s country. And yeah, I I hear you laughing. It was as gross as it sounds. So I have visited our local Home Depot probably north of 48 times this year at least. And we bought this house back in January. So every time I walk into Home Depot and I go looking for one little thing that I need for a specific project, I walk through rows upon rows of different tools. And so I'm kind of come up uh, against this question every visit to Home Depot, how do I know which tool to pick? Which brand do I need? Is one better than the other? Do I really need that ergonomic grip that's going to cost me another $20? You know, then I get distracted. I begin wandering down another aisle. So you see, it's very easy to get lost and distracted when we focus on the tools for home improvement, when, you know, uh, really what I, I need is more of a blueprint to tell me, you know, of all the projects that I need to do in my home, what do I need to focus on first? What do I need to prioritize? And what I need is a broader framework, something that can keep me focused on the end goals. Because, you know, the reality is uh, there are many tools out there and many of them, you know, work just the same as the other. So it's the same, uh, same idea in our lives. What we need is a broader framework that can help us to uncover more meaning in our everyday encounters. So we don't need more tools like mindfulness or positive thinking. And 
you know, those things are very good and they are very helpful, but they just kind of poke into one area of our life. And so we need to apply these particular tools within the context of something greater that gets to all areas of our life. So, you know, here's the specific answer to your question, Amanda. You know, as I started looking back on my own life, and this was when my wife and I had cycled through a rapid series of major life changes all within a single year, I found two broader and overarching frameworks that, you know, when we put these together, it helped me to find greater meaning during frustrating, confusing, and just plain old boring life circumstances. So those two frameworks are a story and paradox. Well, Nate, I hear what you're saying, and I, I want to come back to what you mean when you say major life changes, because we've all experienced, you know, major life changes. And so tell me about the elements of those frameworks and break it down. Um, and since you were using the analogy of Home Depot, um, the, the nuts and bolts. Yeah. So um, the story framework is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years, in fact. And it's how we've learned to communicate everything from our family histories to life lessons. And so naturally, every one of us gravitates towards stories. You know, whenever somebody starts to tell us a story, we can't help but lean in. The, uh, the thing about stories, though, is that they all follow a very standard recipe. Every story in the history of all time has the exact same components. And so every story in its simplest form has characters, it has a setting, and it has plot. And so within that setting, what we find is that there's a character who encounters some type of uh, what's called an inciting incident. And that's the start of the plot. And within that plot, there has to be conflict. So the story can't stagnate. You know, we need to see the characters encountering and overcoming some type of adversity in order to get what he or she wants. And they need to grow within the process of doing so. Because all characters have some type of a flaw that they need to work out as the story develops. And so, you know, when I say conflict or the character encounters conflict, you know, sometimes um, that's an external conflict. There's an antagonist, you know, when we think of like the traditional superhero villain storyline. Um, however, many times, and, you know, this is what I think most of us can relate to, is conflict is actually an internal thing. You know, things like anger, fear, loneliness, self-doubt, these are all battles that rise up within us, and they leave us feeling confused, disheartened, and, you know, unsure of really how to fight back, kind of like friendly fire. You know, searing through our lives, it's a little bit confusing, and it doesn't necessarily present an outside, you know, enemy within the storyline. So, you know, that's a basic uh, story or the framework to a story. In each of us, we all live out our own individual life stories every single week. Uh, and the truth is that we all have different chapters or what we commonly refer to as seasons of our lives. But, you know, here's the thing. Each one of us likes to see ourselves as the author not the character in the story, right? We all want to believe that we have a sense of control and complete autonomy over what's going to develop in our life. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, do you know how and when you'll die? You know, how your story ends? You know, is your life today exactly where you thought it would be 15 years ago when you were thinking about your goals and dreams? You know, it's, um, it, you know, it's kind of a silly question because the reality is no, of course not. And it's because all of us, we're just characters in each of our life stories. We're not the authors. 
And so being a character in a story necessitates that we also have an author. You know, all characters in all stories have authors. So uh, for me, I'm a Christian. That means that I follow God's direction for my life. Now, I don't say Christian as in, you know, following a set of prescribed religious rules, you know, not at all. Rather, Christian to me means that I'm a follower of Christ. I look to him as my author. Now, other people from a theistic worldview or even atheists or simply spiritualists, all of us find direction from someone or something that's outside of ourselves. And so if you're to live out a calling in your life, you must also have a caller. And I think all of us like to buy into this very American idea of the self-made man or woman, but that's actually draining. It's exhausting to try to create your own worth, your own identity, your own purpose every single day. And, you know, if you don't believe me, just look around. You know, if you think about like the business executive who slaves away night and day, you know, they may be following this dream or this idea of self-sufficiency and, you know, therefore might believe that they're a little too independent to have a creator or a caller or an author to follow. But if you just look at the trajectory of their, their life, you know, she or he is following something. It may be money, it may be power, it may be status. There's something that's pulling them forward. And so, you know, the question is, you know, for you, for all of the listeners, what are you following in your life? You know, who or what is writing the story that you're living? And so we have to put ourselves inside the story and see ourselves as a character uh, to begin to find the meaning in the story. So, you know, if this is beginning to go against everything that you've been taught, I mean, th this is America with the American dream after all. And, you know, we're, we're kind of taught from day one that you just have to go out and take what's yours. But you'll begin to see that my, my message is a little bit different from that. And I will give you an example of this. So, I think all of us would agree that we would be willing to give up control over playing the center of our own lesser story if that meant that we got to play a, uh, a lesser role in a bigger story. So again, we would accept a lesser role in a much bigger story if that meant giving up the you know center headlining role in a much lesser story. So take the uh, 2016 Chicago Cubs World Series as an example. So um, I grew up just outside of Chicago. I was a huge baseball fan growing up. And if you remember 2016, that was a uh, history-making, record-setting year. You know, over 100 years without a World Series title in the 2016 Cubs team, uh, they did it. You know, they, they were the dream to be a part of that team. And so for me... I would absolutely say that I would prefer to uh, uh, be part of the Cubs organization as a, you know, maybe a subpar relief pitcher or heck, even the groundskeeper, if that meant I got to be a part of the story, you know, even if I was an all-star league leading pitcher for my high school team, right, a lesser story, I would put that behind me and I would give that up if it meant that I could just be part of that Cubs organization in 2016. You know, so here's what's backward about all of this. It's that in the moment that we begin to give up a sense of, you know, this like white knuckle control over our lives and we stop trying to create meaning for ourselves, we'll actually find out who we're meant to be. And that right there, that's a paradox. So that's the second framework. You know, uh, the idea that we would find ourselves and our purpose by following someone or something outside of ourselves, that's, that's a little backward. 
but all true and all meaningful things in our lives follow this principle of paradox. And so again, what a paradox is, is something that, you know, seems or feels backward at first, but is actually true. And so, you know, all taken within that um, story framework, we can begin to see how those interplay and all lead up to the end goal here, finding more meaning in the, you know, everyday ordinary moments of our lives. So Nate, I really like what you're saying about, I, I think it's a really interesting analogy um, of us being characters in our own story. And I, I, I'm really drawn to that analogy because I'm a writer myself, so it does really make sense. But um, you talked about paradox. So can you give another example of paradox in life and how that helped you find meaning? Yeah, so um, I, I will give you another story to illustrate this. So um, recently I, uh, I went to the barbershop for a haircut and while I was waiting, I saw this like very slender, narrow black pole just kind of sticking out, hanging in the middle of the walkway where people enter the barbershop. And so I was thinking to myself, I was reading a magazine and I, I kind of looked up from it and I thought, you know, someone's going to trip over that thing. I should probably go move it. But then I, I realized that that pole was actually designed to prevent somebody from tripping. So there was um, a small child. He was maybe nine or 10 years old old wearing black sunglasses and this you know kind of funny crooked smile and he was gripping a leather bound handle on the pole um, and so what I realized is that um, this this child he was blind and so this was his walking stick so um, shortly after a stylist called out James so that was his name James and uh, uh, he was there with his mother who accompanied him over to one of those you know kind of like oversized a barber's chair like they used to have in kind of the old-fashioned salon setups and so you know i, I kind of watched as james sat down into the chair and his mom conferred with the the stylist for a few moments kind of sharing how he liked his haircut and uh, uh after that the stylist fired up her clippers the shears and as she brought them close to james's ear to begin trimming the sides of his hair um, I was watching his facial expressions and he began to kind of wince and recoil from the loud noise. His brow, his brow kind of began to furrow as she would navigate the clippers around, almost like he was um, kind of uh, paying, you know, extra close attention to all of the noise. And whenever there was a new sound in the shop, so for example, like a bell that would uh, kind of ring as somebody walked in, he would kind of like crane his neck to... Uh, uh, lean in or lean toward that noise. And so the stylist had to keep kind of bringing him back, you know, into the chair. And so he was completely curious as to what was happening around him. But as I sat there in the waiting room, you know, reading my magazine, uh, the whole time I was uh, very intent on tuning out all of the noise and activity around me. It was actually kind of rather, you know, frustrating. I wanted to read this article and I was, you know, distracted. Yeah. So then um, after some time, the stylist leaned over into uh, kind of recline uh, the chair backward to uh, begin to shampoo James's hair. And he had this like, you know, wide open mouth smile, the kind that you see on a roller coaster, right? So as he was uh, being leaned back toward the sink basin, he began to laugh as he felt the pressurized water, kind of the sudsy hair, uh, hands running through his hair. <laughs> and, you know, I had to think to myself, like, was I really going to have that much fun getting my sh my hair shampooed? <laughs> and if I was honest, you know, not a chance. I was actually a little frustrated 
that um, I had one waited long past my schedule appointment time and two I was missing out on some afternoon plans as a result and so you know I was I was beginning to feel a little salty and even angry um, that my my wait had gone past its expected time so you know what I learned from James that day is that all of us need to shut down the flow of information in order to absorb more and so that's what's backward and help and it helped me to begin to see you know, more meaning inside of a, you know, uh, waiting room that was cramped, crowded, and amidst a feeling of frustration. You know, so our attention spans today, they're shorter than a goldfish. Um, if you're curious, you can look it up. The average attention span is less than eight seconds now. And so our minds have just grown weary from this media overload. And so it's no wonder that we've become numb to the ordinary or the average things of life, you know, getting our hair shampooed at the salon for example. And so it's only the really extraordinary messages that break through to us, you know, very simply out of necessity. Our brains are forced to filter through what is and what is not important. You know, the challenge here, though, is that not everything that's sensational is also meaningful. You know, not everything that shocks us is going to bring us life. So to find more meaning during our ordinary days, we need to begin to strip away some of all the, the stimulus. And so that's the paradox of our five senses that James helped me to see. If you strip away one of those senses, you know, James's sight, for example, all of the others begin to grow more sensitive. So, you know, if we simply begin to shut down all of this incessant flow of information, we'll see that we actually begin to absorb more of what's around us. Yeah, I, I totally connect with the story. One of the things I'm, I was thinking about when you're talking about that is that the same thing if I go out at night on Lopez Island, you see a million stars because you don't have all that ambient light. And it's amazing just to absorb it. But if you're in the city and you look up, you only see a few stars, right? It's like that filtering. And so I love this conversation, Nate. So let's uh i'd really like to hear how you really stumbled upon these things in the first place uh then observing uh little james here yeah and so i'll kind of walk you through how i stumbled across this but i'll um i'll say you know your comment is really interesting because it's it's part of what i write about um or include and it's a named problem today it's called the problem of proximity and basically the idea is that you know, we are distracted by, you know, far lesser and less meaningful things. So for example, you know, the light on our cell phone and it distracts us or takes us away from, you know, thousands and millions upon millions of brilliant stars right overhead. So, you know, I, I think what you're saying is, is super interesting and that's um, uh, part of, you know, that analogy, even what I, I write about. Um, I, so I so agree. But um, to your question, kind of how I, you know, came across or stumbled upon this. So over the last few years, life has changed very quickly for me. So I did everything from, you know, racing Ironman triathlons with Team USA even for a year. I left a very plush consulting job to build a startup company. That company was then acquired. I started dating. I got married. My wife left her job. We moved cities. We bought a house, you know, so on. So I checked off a lot of, you know, very major life boxes very quickly. And to be honest, it was stressful. There was a season during all of these changes where I didn't have a lease nor a home. So for eight months, I lived out of a duffel bag 
I was on over 80 flights, you know, God loves Southwest airlines and I was always on the go. And I thought I needed to be, you know, I thought I was going to be missing out on the next big thing. If I didn't keep up this, you know, manic pace and my life as an entrepreneur and as a nonprofit storyteller in um, uh, most of my career has meant that, you know, I do a lot of traveling and I do a lot of speaking engagements and trainings. And so kind of throughout all of those changes and through that very, you know, quick and ceaseless pace, I needed some type of release. So I, I needed therapy, but I was too proud to break down and go see a counselor. So, you know, instead I began um, channeling this all into my writing and I, I've always been a writer, but usually in more short form writing. So I put all of those skills to work by writing out short stories from uh, the different changes and times in my life that I had learned some. Because as my life was speeding up, I wanted to make sure that I held onto those lessons. I felt like they were just going to start leaving my brain. And so I was going to begin repeating some of the mistakes that I, sh I should have already learned from. So as I started writing this idea of, um, you can call it narrative therapy, you know, it, it kind of took over. And it's this practice of, you know, seeing yourself in the middle of a story from a more objective lens. And it helps you begin to realize that, you know, all is not over yet when you're in the middle of a, you know, frustrating or confusing or maybe just overwhelming circumstance. You know, you begin to see that it's really just a chapter that will come to pass eventually. And so as I finished writing out all of these, you know, seemingly separate stories over the period of a year, I began to put them in a, into a timeline. And in that process, that's when I discovered two very distinct themes that wove all of these different stories together uh, with a great deal of coherency and consistency. And so those two themes were the frameworks that we've been talking about, paradox and story. That's really interesting. So Nate, perhaps you can run us through some of the paradoxes you've seen. There's a whole list of them you found, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. So um, in my upcoming book, Living Forward, Looking Backward, um, each of the different paradoxes is the theme of one chapter in the book. Great. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. No, no, that's good. I think it's, I agree with you, Amanda. That is great. Um, Nate, can you um, tell us a bit more? Uh, maybe start running through the list of paradoxes and uh, I'm going to pick so up some to ask you about as we go through. And Amanda, you do the same. Yeah, sure. yeah, I think that's a great idea. So, um, yeah, I'll just list them and then you guys can tell me which sounds most interesting. Um, so, you know, just kind of uh, going through the list, uh, slow down and you'll begin to see more in life. The bigger the failure, the more learning you gain. It's actually the ordinary people who become our biggest heroes. We can find true rest while we're still at work. Extraordinary moments are actually found in everyday settings. The simplest gestures often carries the most significant meaning. Uh, the biggest goals are achieved by the smallest steps. You only earn grace when you stop trying. It's easiest to hurt those you love the most. Uh, your biggest life changes often develop the fastest. Disappointing beginnings create all of the happy endings. Your life's deepest joys have to be found outside of yourself. Um, you'll always lose something in the process of gaining something. And complex life lessons come in simple packages. So, you know, uh, that's just kind of a, a short list of different paradoxes um, that I've seen in my life. A few of those stood out to me. Um, maybe we can talk about the, f the first one that I, that I noted. The bigger the failure, the more learning you gain. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, this one relates to a time in my life when I was working for a major league consulting firm. And so I would have considered this, you know, in air quotes, my first real job. So before this, I had worked for a nonprofit. Um, I had kind of held different, you know, odd jobs. But, um, you know, this was a major league firm where we served Fortune 500 companies and we provided some type of valuation expertise. So, you know, basically, if you were a company that had developed some type of technology and you wanted to know how much that was worth, you came to us and we built a really big, fancy Excel spreadsheet that took a whole bunch of data and gave you one estimate of the value of your property or technology. So when, uh, when I was in my first year at this firm, I had an opportunity to work with a vice president, his name was Chris, on a new case uh, that came into the firm. And now Chris was one of those vice presidents that you loved working with. You know, every day you were excited to walk into his office. So while there were some vice presidents that were, you know, they were tolerable at best and ruthless <laughs> at the very worst, like I, I genuinely had a smile um, working with Chris and I learned a great deal from him. And we had uh, a, a pretty big case that we had to develop a model and a report for over a two month period. So kind of the typical timeline for most cases would be upwards of six months. So this was going to be a, a big project. And with just two of us on the case, it was rare that, you know, a first year consultant would have so much responsibility. But, you know, not only did I truly enjoy working with Chris, he trusted me. And so what that meant is that um, Chris began to hand over more and more responsibility and autonomy uh, in our case to me. And this was largely unheard of, again, for a first year consultant. And so I was doing my best to, you know, not only produce timely work, but work that was going to be quality and impressive. And so I was uh, practically sleeping in the office at, at certain points, you know, trying to make sure that I was getting all of the work done. So I, you know, really threw myself into this. So fast forward to the uh, uh, end of the case, and it's uh, a few hours before our midnight deadline. And I'm beginning to get, you know, just like this feeling that, you know, we are so close to this deadline, but in the back of my mind, something isn't right. You know, there's, so in the story framework, we would call that foreshadowing, right? right. Something just um, feels off. And I, I couldn't put my finger on anything specific, but, uh, you know, I just kind of, uh, we went forward and uh, we submitted the report um, to our clients. Now, this particular report had to go into the court system because it was part of the testimony that um, this company's legal team was going to use to support a claim for patent infringement. So this was a big deal. Once you send in a report to the courts, I mean, it is, it is sealed and it is part of history forever. And so as we submitted this report, you know, I just, again, I had this like feeling where the, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck, just a little bit saying, you know, something's a little off, but, you know, we submitted the report. We couldn't find anything that was off or remiss. You know, Chris was confident in it. And mind you, this report carried Chris's name and reputation on it. So we submitted it and then we began to celebrate. We were um, having some wine in his office. We were kicking back and it was great. And I began to finally feel at ease, like we had done it. But it was in that moment that the phone started to ring and it was the lawyers who were representing the client on the other end of the phone. 
and they they picked it up and I could just hear this like yelling into the phone you know when you're not the one holding the receiver but you can just kind of hear this like really loud muffled noise and so I'm I'm listening to this you know just beginning to to lean forward trying to make out what they're saying to Chris and I hear Chris say we missed it I'm sorry we just missed it and what had happened is that I had forgotten to link an update in the Excel sheet that had the final number or the valuation to the Word document that was submitted to the court. And so the numbers that we submitted and were sealed under Chris's name in the court record were wrong. They were just flat out plain wrong. And it was a very simply put all my fault. This was my role in the report and I, I dropped the ball. And so I'm listening to Chris and he says, I'm sorry, I missed it. It was my fault. I missed it. And I just felt crushed. I just wanted to like fall through the floor and through all we were on the 34th floor. I just wanted to like fall all the way down to the first floor, just be done with me and over because, you know, this wasn't just about my mistake and the fact that I had screwed up when I had a lot of responsibility, you know, on my plate. I just torpedoed one of the, you know, best vice presidents in the firm. I torpedoed his reputation and his trust. And so it felt like I had just stabbed a friend in the back. And so I am just like beside myself by the time that Chris hangs up the phone and he, he turns and he looks at me and this is what he said. He said, Nate, it's time to go home. And, you know, I, I pause and I'm like, what? You know, Chris, I just, I screwed up royally. I am going to sleep in my clothes for the next 72 hours and I need to work overtime and I need it. I wanted to pay some type of like penance, you know, to make amends for how I had failed him in the grandest of fashions. And he said that again, he said, Nate, there's nothing more to do tonight. We'll come back tomorrow and we'll do it again. And again, I was like, you know, this isn't right. Like, tell me what I have to do, Chris, and I will do it. But what I learned from this and really from Chris's reaction to my failure is that, you know, um, nobody is perfect. There is a little bit of grace that everybody needs. And not only did I learn, you know, how to check and ensure the quality of my work. Yes, that, that is an important lesson for, you know, future clients and future engagements, but more so I, I learned what it meant to, you know, truly see a person as a person, not a, not somebody who, you know, will always live up to this standard of perfection. And so Chris, for me, set the precedent of how I uh, do and will forever interact with everybody that I work with. And so that lesson I hold far more valuable than any, you know, technical learning on that case. So kind of the, the paradox here, all connected back to the story is that the bigger the failure, the more learning you gain. Yeah. Wow. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and I would absolutely agree with, um, with this paradox. I've learned, I found the same things. Um, Amanda, what were the uh, other, you had two more? Yeah, uh, the next one that intrigued me was it's easiest to hurt those you love most. So Nate, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that one. Yeah. So um, this this story comes from a time in my life um, pretty soon after I had um, been dating, who is now my wife, Erin. Um, she was then my girlfriend. 
And so we were kind of in this stage where we were far beyond kind of the early romance and, you know, kind of like the butterfly phase and Mm -hmm. in my professional life. So uh, before this, this time I had left the consulting firm. I had co-founded a a startup that that company was uh, subsequently bought by another company that was based in DC. And so I was traveling back and forth from uh, Chicago to DC every single week. I was in the process of uh, leading a small group at my church. I was um, volunteering for a group of nonprofits regularly. I was trying to keep up with my existing friendships. Um, and then I was trying to continue to um, not just date, but you know, uh, really love and date well, uh, Aaron. And so life was just very full. It was very packed during this time. And um, I remember there was uh, two friends that I just hadn't seen in a long time. And so we uh, made arrangements for them to come over to my loft uh, for dinner. And so Aaron and I uh, cooked dinner. We made a taco bar with um, grilled fish and steak and chicken. And it was a great night. Good conversation. You know, kind of the friends that, you know, you don't have to really work when you're around them. Just the conversation is very refreshing. So um, these were those friends. And so it was a great evening. But again, this was just one more pre-planned and pre-scheduled activity amidst a a very full or a too full season of life. So um, after these friends leave, Aaron and I are, we're doing the dishes, we're cleaning up, and I'm just silent. And for most people, when they get, you know, grumpy or strung out or overwhelmed, they begin to get irritable and they might lash out. For me, I just shut down. It's like a switch that flips and I turn off. And Aaron, because we've been dating for, uh, we had been dating for a little over six months at this point, uh, she knew that. And so this was like a big red flag to her. And so she starts to press in as we're doing dishes. And, you know, she, you know, Nate, what's wrong? Is there, is there something that you want to talk about? You know, what's not right. And I am just trying to dodge all of these questions because I just want to shut down the conversation. I don't want to talk about it. And I just want to move forward and keep on keeping on at the pace that I am going. Right. So um, eventually she just drops her dishes into the sink and she looks at me and she says, Nate, something's not right. We need to talk about this. So I'm like, oh gosh, okay, you know, uh, let's talk. So I kind of hop up on the uh, kitchen island and I I begin kind of searching for, you know, what I should say. And so I begin to say, you know, Aaron, have you ever felt like there's just like this, you know, fire or flame in you that is slowly being snuffed out? And she's like, no, Nate, I, 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 I don't. What do you mean by that? And so I'm like, you know, just when you have like this, you know, sense that, you know, there's this flame in all of us and normally it burns very bright when there's some excitement and energy. I just feel like, you know, that that flame is going out and I think I need a break. And so when I said those words, I think I need a break. Like there was just this like paling in Aaron's face and she she began to talk, but then she just stopped. And so what she thought I was saying is that I needed a break from her, that I couldn't keep doing this, that I needed some separation and some space from the relationship. What I was trying to communicate very inarticulately was that I just needed to catch a break from everything that was happening in life. But you see, Erin, and to give you some context here, she had lost her father to cancer just a few years before we started dating. 
And so for her, us dating was a very intentional process of opening up her heart again to somebody and beginning to love um, somebody that she feared that she was going to lose, just like she had lost her father. And so when I said those words, I think I need a break, you know, she felt that she was losing the person that she was beginning to love. And so she began to, and very rightfully so, fall into this spiral where, you know, she, she began to kind of hyperventilate, you know, just tears. She couldn't really say anything. And she went over and sat down. I had this big kind of green sectional couch. And so she just, she sat down in the corner of this couch and just started sobbing. And I had no idea what to do. Yeah, every time I tried to give her a hug, she just kind of recoiled away from me. And again, I was at that moment, the source of her pain. So, you know, why would she want a hug from me? And so I was just at a loss for words. And so we just sat there for probably a half hour, not really saying anything. And I was just kind of looking out of the window of my loft, kind of watching the rain come down. And it was in that moment that it dawned on me that, and here's the paradox, that it's easiest to hurt, it's easiest to hurt the people that you love the most. And so because Aaron was closest to me, my words carried the greatest weight and the greatest meaning. And in that moment, they were like a knife. And so I, uh, I, I eventually was able to talk with Aaron. She uh, kind of calmed down and composed herself. And, you know, a, a really good conversation came out of it. And we were able to, to talk about what each of us needs in the relationship. But had I just paid attention in that moment, you know, to that one paradox, it's easiest to hurt the people that you love the most. I would have been much more careful and intentional about the words that I chose to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, no, that really makes sense. Misunderstandings are so easy. So easy. They really are. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think there was one more that you were going to talk about. And the one I, I was thinking was, you always lose something in the process of gaining something. Yeah. So, um, that's a good one uh, to bring up because it kind of relates back to um, the last story of Aaron and I. So if you fast forward another year, um, we've gotten engaged, we've gotten married, and it is uh, time for our honeymoon. So we decide we had moved from Chicago to Denver. Aaron had left her job. You know, life just continued to be very full. So we decided that we were going to delay our honeymoon in Thailand for uh, a few months. So we, um, we get to Thailand and at every turn, it feels like we are just on opposite extremes. You know, Aaron just wants to uh, have some downtime, massages, relaxing conversation. Whereas for me, I'm in the middle of a brand new culture in a place I've never been. And I am like a kid in a candy store. You know, I want to jump off of cliffs <laughs> and I want to try to hit my hands, you know, all this stuff that you know, uh, probably doesn't scream honeymoon romance to you guys. <laughs> so we were just kind of on opposite ends during the entire two weeks of our honeymoon. Well, if I rewind the story back to when we were just planning our trip while we were engaged, Erin made a deal with me and she said, Nate, in the first week of our honeymoon, we can plan out all of the adventures and things that you want to do. But promise me that we're going to be able to uh, we're going to be able to spend some us time just relaxing and hanging out together in the last week. And so, of course, I was like, sure, sounds great. No problem. And that bargain got thrown right out of the window as soon as we landed in Thailand. <laughs> so, you know, fast forward, we, we've spent two weeks in the country. 
this kind of um, opposite extreme phenomenon has happened throughout the whole time. And so it's the second to the last day of our trip. And so, again, I am just wound up on trying to do everything that I can before we leave. And so we go to this beach. It's called Rayleigh Beach. If, um, if you want to Google it, if you've never heard of it before, you will see like the perfect picturesque setting that is on every single like tropical vacation postcard. So when, when we take this uh, little boat out to Rayleigh, um, again, it's like Ralphie from A Christmas Story when he sees the Red Rider BB gun, you know, his eyes just get wide with possibilities. So that's me when we show up. And again, Aaron just wants to hang out on the beach, have some us time. So we, uh, we go and we kind of are settling down um, on the beach and I look up and I see these people rock climbing overhead. And I'm like, that looks amazing. Aaron, I think I need to go rock climb. And so, I, you know, I kind of uh, framed it as I need to do this <laughs> so that she would be less likely to say, um, yes, go ahead. And so she said, you know, Nate, we talked about this. This was, this was our time to just be together. You know, maybe we can plan that for another time. So I kind of with a hung head, I'm like, all right, you know, let's, let's go hang out on the beach. So we're doing that. And then I begin to uh, kind of frame it as like, you know, there's really not a whole lot to do here. Why don't we, why don't we go swim? Why don't we go try something else? And every time I begin to press in like Aaron, let's do something. She gets a little bit more and more and more frustrated. And keep in mind, this has been like, you know, a, a bottle of soda that you just keep shaking and pressure is rising and rising and rising until we all know what happens eventually when it becomes uncorked, you know, first, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, uh, I decide that I just go, I dive out into the water, I swim out, and I'm just going to tire myself out to the best that I can so that I can just sit down on the beach and relax. And again, this just kind of further highlights to Aaron that I'm not content hanging out and doing what I said I would do, spending time with her. And so when I get back, Aaron, Aaron just says, Nate, this is not fun. We need to talk about it. And so through a lot of tears and a uh, slight meltdown, we begin to talk about, you know, how for me, all of this um, frustration and the miscommunication has been rooted in the fact that um, I feel that I haven't been able to do what I wanted to do, that in getting married, I've had to give up my sense of adventure and what I would say is my nateness or what makes Nate Nate. I've had to sacrifice that all, you know, on the altar of doing what makes Aaron comfortable or satisfied. Now, of course, that's not true, but that's what I was feeling. And, you know, what I was missing was this paradox. You always lose something in the process of gaining something. So let me say that one more time so you don't miss it. You always lose something in the process of gaining something. And so what I was too immature to see on my honeymoon of all places was the fact that in order to gain a more meaningful and fulfilling life with my wife, I had to give up some of the you know single immaturity where time was my own schedule, my own preferences um, it, in order to grow as a team and as a unit. And so, again, had I just realized at the start of the trip that, you know, while I was, I may be giving up some choice or some autonomy, you know, over creating my own honeymoon, what I was gaining was infinitely more valuable. And that's a, you know, solid treasured relationship with my wife. So um, uh, hopefully not, uh, 
not a mistake that anybody ever has to repeat in the context of their <laughs> home. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that is a particularly painful paradox that I, I stumbled upon. Yeah. Well, and that's so true, right? Amanda, I'm sorry I interrupted yeah. you. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say the same thing. It's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. and all kinds of things. Um, wait till you have children. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, um, you know, this has been a terrific conversation, Nate, and we appreciate everything that you've shared. And uh, I think let's just sort of close with, you know, if you could sum it up for us and um, share with our listeners where they can find more information about you and your new book, Living Forward, Looking Backward. Great. Uh, well, thanks again for having me. And in summary, you know, to put a bow around this all is that each of us can find more meaning and greater purpose in the everyday and ordinary moments of our lives. If we just look to the principle of paradox, this idea that, you know, although something may be backward, it's actually very true. And the story framework and seeing both of those frameworks at work in our life. And if uh, you want to read a little bit more uh, you want to hear some more stories, dive into some more of these paradoxes, um, you can check out my website. It is livefwd.org. So liveforward.org, livefwd.org. Um, and there, there's a, a free download. If you want to take a look at some of the first chapters um, in my new book, Living Forward, Looking Backward, um, there's an email list sign up as well as a link out to the full book itself. Terrific. And we'll make sure that we also include um, those links uh, in the show notes. And uh, I'd just like to thank, thank you again, Nate, and thank to all of our guests who've joined us for today's podcast. Thank you, Amanda. And uh, we're looking forward to our next terrific dialogue here at Petite to Queen. And if any of our audience would like to suggest a question or a topic for discussion, or they have a question about today's show, please email us at jointheconversation at petitequeen.com. 